0: Good morning there, Um, it's really a privilege to be continuing to speak to you about having a sound mind, having a sound mind And essentially what we're talking about is getting rid of stinking thinking, getting rid of the lies that we've believed Because the fruit of those lies is always death, it's always destruction, let's pray Father, we pray that you would come this morning, that you would touch our hearts and you would teach us by your Holy Spirit. We open our hearts to you, Lord, and help us to be doers of the word and not just hear us. Come and do what only you can do, Holy Spirit. Come and assist us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So how do we continue to have a sound mind in everything that we do? Now, we've covered so many Of these cognitive distortions and so today I'm going to start with the 19th one, with the 19th one and we're going to complete this uh, art of having a sound mind. We're going to complete this today. So number 19 is confirmation bias. Confirmation bias and I'm sure you've heard of this before but it's an interesting concept. Confirmation bias is the tendency to search for, to interpret, to focus on and to remember information that is consistent with our preconceptions, right? To remember that information and to actually look for it. So have you noticed what happens? If you are doing research, you start off with a hypothesis, don't you, right? A certain belief that you have about a particular outcome. And then when you conduct the research, guess what you do? You literally ignore any information that is contrary to the hypothesis you have. Right? Now the dangerous thing about this is it causes us to actually lie. It causes us to engage in situations where we have uh, prejudice. All right, um, And I think we see this happening so often in the world today. So people tend to only see what they want to see. If you believe that Paul is a good football player, if you believe I'm a very good football player, then one day you're watching me playing football and you see me making a whole lot of mistakes. What do you say? No, it must have just been a bad day. No, 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 it's because he's not feeling that well. And we end up excusing certain things instead of realizing that, you know what, Paul is actually bad, right? Uh, He's just got pace maybe and he's got a strong right foot, but you know what, he can't dribble, Right, Um, he can't. His first touch is bad. We don't acknowledge what we're actually seeing because of our preconception, you see. So, unfortunately, we tend to find what we're looking for. We tend to find what we're looking for. If you're the kind of person who believes that church people are not friendly and church is not essential to your life, guess what will happen? You will find what you're looking for. You pitch up at a church service. And you will look for the most unfriendly looking face. And it will confirm that particular bias. That's confirmation bias. But if you believe that church people can help you, church people are loving, they've been touched by God, church people are so friendly, guess what? You will look for that and you will find what you are looking for. So very often when we make statements, we make them as unrighteous judgments. They're actually unrighteous judgments and they reinforce preconceptions that we actually already have. Alright, so <clears throat> have you noticed a parent when their child stops winning races? What does that parent do? They blame the umpires, they blame the refs, right? They start saying, ah, oh, ref, oh, why are you guys doing this? Or we blame some biological fact. Your child stops winning races and you're like, no, he's going through a growth spurt. Then the second year he stops winning again. No, it must be because of, you know, that pain he has in in his Achilles. Instead of actually acknowledging that, you know what, maybe he's not extremely fast. Right? Maybe he's quite fast. Maybe there's some people who actually do beat him. Maybe he's better at high jump. Instead of acknowledging those other things, we have confirmation bias. Not my child, not under my watch. All right? So what is confirmation bias causing you to do? Is it causing anger to rise up in you? Is it causing you to have conflict with people when you ought not to be engaging in that type of conflict? What is your confirmation bias causing you to do? And what can you replace those beliefs with? Can you engage with God and look at what his word is actually saying, right? And then actually have positive beliefs about certain situations and then you end up looking for that, looking for the best in people. It's amazing what happens. I remember some time ago interacting with someone who was um, seen as quite a nasty person and a lot of people didn't really like this individual. Um, It was a kind of corporate situation. And I remember, because I didn't have that background and my belief was, you know what, there's something great about this individual. I remember speaking to the treasure in that person and relating to him accordingly and drawing out the treasure in that person. It was interesting because someone came to me afterwards and said, Paul, you seem to just be able to draw out the best in people. And we're now seeing the good side of that individual, okay? But in a sense, that was my confirmation bias, but it was working in a positive way because that's what I was seeing and I was relating to the individual accordingly. Have you been in situations where you're told a lot of negative stories about someone, right? And you get into an environment and you relate to them accordingly, right? Confirmation bias, right? And um, you relate to them accordingly and you see what everyone else was saying. Or have you been in a situation where you relate to an individual by basically saying to everyone else you know what guys your story doesn't have to be my story and you have a completely different experience of that person i remember in one organization people would say uh you know what uh, the problem with that guy is he's so serious whenever we go we can't even go into his office we're too scared to do so we were having a team session And I remember one lady saying, I have a completely different experience of this individual. And she just started to describe how she related to this person in a completely different way. And this guy wanted the feedback. And I could see the positive in him. He was just more of an introvert. Um, He preferred just working by himself. But he got the feedback that his team was basically saying, please engage with us more, right? We want to interact with you more. Now, not everyone fell for it. Not everyone engaged with him according to that confirmation bias. Some people had a positive relationship with him. So I encourage you to think about the impact of this on your life right now. Okay. So what lies were you told about people when you were growing up? Were you told that certain people are safe and other people are unsafe? Okay. Are there certain people you've been warned about but you haven't actually seen the facts around that person? You haven't done the research yourself, okay? How has the confirmation bias affected your decision-making and also your levels of trust, okay? Um, The American Psychological Association defines it this way. Confirmation bias is the tendency to look for information that supports rather than rejects one's preconceptions, typically by interpreting evidence to confirm existing beliefs while rejecting or ignoring any conflicting data. And so the key question I want to ask you is, have you been ignoring the conflicting data? Have you been ignoring it or have you been embracing it in your process of researching a particular matter? Okay, Um, so it leads us to unrighteous judgments. It leads us to partiality, partiality. Okay, look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. I'm reading from the ESV. It says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Now, if you want to grow as a leader, if you want to be effective as a leader, it's so, so crucial that you are not partial. That you're not partial. Okay? And Righteousness here speaks of rightly and accurately. So when it says, you should, um, it says, but in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor, right? In other words, you, should, you shall judge your neighbor accurately, accurately, and very often, we're not making accurate judgments. And the word partial here, where it says, you shall not be partial to the poor, the word partial actually speaks of taking, right? Uh, and the word defer, where it says, defer to the great, speaks of swelling up. In other words, you shouldn't give the great an unfair advantage. You shouldn't swell them up. You shouldn't magnify them in your own eyes, all right? And sometimes we do that. We're like, no, 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 he must know more, no, because he's so educated. No, no, no. We, we, and we do that. So we defer to the great and we are partial to the poor. We take from the poor, right? We subtract from the poor okay, or the marginalized. In Acts chapter 10, verses 34 to 35, also in the ESV, it says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, okay, he doesn't take away from, shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Okay, that was in his interaction with uh, Cornelius and what he experienced today. And he realized that, mm, okay, God is not partial. So as you reflect on your life today, just remember that he's not partial and he calls us to be like him. And it's interesting because partiality here, it's the word prosopolemptus. okay, prosopolemptus, And it means acceptor of a face, acceptor of a face. So, it's basically saying God is not an acceptor of a face, okay? In other words, he's not a respecter of persons. That's when we get that phrase, a respecter of persons. He doesn't look at things at face value, right? He looks beneath the smiles. He looks at the heart, okay? He doesn't judge based on outward appearance. He's not an acceptor of a face, okay? It comes from two words, actually. Prosopon, which means the face, Right? or the countenance, or the surface. Right? He's not an acceptor of the surface. Right? And lambano, which means to receive or to take hold of. He doesn't take hold of the surface. Right? So uh, I think it's so powerful because he sees what's beneath. He looks at the inward parts. So, God desires that we accurately discern things, okay? And we see this in how we interpret scripture, don't we, okay? Uh, A lot of people do what's called proof texting, okay? Proof texting. So, uh, that's a form of confirmation bias. It's where you already have a belief about something, right? You already have an idea. And you just go to the Bible to look for all the evidence that supports that idea. But you don't actually search all the scriptures concerning that particular subject. So, for example, if you believe that God uh, wants you to, uh, every single time in your life, every single moment, be extremely wealthy, you will look for the verses that support that idea, right? And you will ignore any verse that talks about um being careful of greed, you'll ignore any verse that talks about suffering, you'll ignore any verse that talks about life being arrived at in stages and being patient, okay? And you will just focus on the verses that confirm your particular bias, okay? That's just an example of proof texting. That's why um, often the best way of studying scripture, uh, just to give you a tip, is to look at all the verses pertaining to the particular subject matter, that you are researching, alright? Um, so, for example, in my book um, that's to do with uh, Kingdom Wealth, right, I did a study of um, all the scriptures I could find pertaining to money and wealth, okay? And not all of them just talk about uh, get-rich-quick scheme, alright? Um, a lot of them talk about certain warnings, warnings to the rich, for example. Right? It's so important to do that, otherwise we miss out on what God might be saying to us, okay? Um, I love this wonderful summary by Ikra Noor um, concerning confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the tendency of people to favor information that confirms their existing beliefs or hypotheses. Confirmation bias happens when a person gives more weight to evidence that confirms their beliefs and undervalues evidence that could disprove it. Even when you're engaging with people, when you're having a debate or dialogue concerning a thing, are you listening intently, even if your original idea or belief is contrary to what the other person is saying? Are you almost like trying to allow people to prove you wrong by listening to them, okay? Um, People display this bias when they gather or recall information selectively or when they interpret it in a biased way. And the effect is stronger for emotionally charged issues and for deeply entrenched beliefs. So if you've got a deeply entrenched belief about a particular people group, the effect of your confirmation bias will be stronger. Okay, something to really think about. Let's examine the next one, the next one, and it's conceit. And low self-efficacy. This is the next cognitive distortion I would like us to look at. Conceit and low self-efficacy. Okay, so my definition of conceit is basically this. Conceit is where you have a higher estimation of yourself than you ought. When you have a higher estimation of yourself than you ought. The reality, ladies and gentlemen, is it's been found that men, on average, tend to overestimate their abilities, and women tend to underestimate their abilities. We see this in the workplace, don't we, right? There could be a vacancy for a particular job, and on average, you'll find that uh, a woman will look and will be like, oh, but they want someone with five years' experience, but I only have four and a half years' experience. Oh, I hope they keep this job open for the next six months, then I'll apply. We see this happening in the workplace a lot, okay? In the corporate world. And then you'll find a lot of guys will look, and they'll be like, "Hey Joe, we were second last year. Yeah, yeah, we did that. It was just what it was—a three-month stint. But I've got this. I can do this." And they apply for the particular role, and often they end up getting it. Okay, and so it's—it's it's interesting the power of self-belief. Okay, but it's also dangerous when you overestimate your um, your abilities. So I'll say to you, when a guy says he can do it, sometimes you have to take it with a pinch of salt, right? If you're in leadership, sometimes you have to take it with a pinch of, a pinch of salt. And when a lady says she can do it, sometimes you have to take that. Uh, when she says she can't do it, sometimes you have to take that with a pinch of salt, okay? Because uh, often she can, but it's to do with self-belief. And, uh, and this is so crucial, okay? So um, I see it in the world of running a lot, You know, that's why you see that a lot of women will do well at the comrades, for example, all right, at some of these ultra-marathons, because they know how to pace themselves, right? They're saying to themselves, listen, this is a long race. I must take it easy. And what do a lot of men do? They bomb out, because they just run fast, fast, fast at the start, and they can't sustain it. Why? They were conceited. They overestimated their ability to maintain a particular pace, I still remember it happened to me Um, some months ago I was running with my wife and I said to her, okay, my love, so um, I'll, I'll pull you, okay, I'll pull you, you know, the concept of pulling someone, right, where you go ahead of them, and uh, it's like an elastic band kind of thing, and you say to them, look, just stay behind me, Certain, stay this distance behind me, and I'll pull you up that hill, or I'll pull you in this particular thing, and I remember, and I never got past her, you know, she just remained uh, in front of me, and I ended up saying to her, just carry on running, just carry on running, okay, um, so I thought I was the one who was going to pull her. She she also thought that, actually, um, you know, because the race wasn't too long, but uh, she it ended up being the other way around. She ended up, in a sense, pulling me, all right? Why? Because as men, we tend to overestimate our abilities, right? And I learned my lesson that um, that day. So I want to ask you the question, are you overestimating your abilities or are you underestimating your abilities? You see, you know, humility is agreement with the truth. So, we need to actually agree with the truth about ourselves. We mustn't overestimate our abilities and we mustn't underestimate our abilities. You know, that has been found that two-thirds of Americans believe that their intelligence is above average. But men are much more likely to inflate themselves than women. In fact, in surveys, uh, more than 70% of men stated... That they are smarter than the average, okay, compared to about sixty percent of women, okay. So, are you are you amongst those seventy percent of men who think that you are more intelligent and smart than the average person? There's also what's known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Okay? And it describes the tendency for unskilled individuals to overestimate their own ability and experts to underestimate their own ability. Isn't that interesting? That's why sometimes you'll find situations where people are like, cool, tennis, I've got this, yeah, I'm this, I'm that, and so on. And you find the experts themselves, the professionals, are always downplaying their strengths. And that causes them to actually work harder, isn't it? You know, I've got this fault, I need to work on it. I've got this weakness, I need to sort it out. Have you seen how critical um, a lot of professional musicians are with regards to themselves and their own abilities? And that uh, self-criticism drives them to work even harder. Whereas you have some people who are like, hey guys, listen to this tune, you know? And you're like, "Mm, okay, I think it's his mom who thinks he's great. Who encouraged this guy to get onto idols, all right? Um, something for us to consider. Now, let's have a look at scriptures concerning conceit. In Galatians 6 verse 3, it says, if anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves, okay? So, one of the dangers of conceit is self-deception, all right? Often, you can't see it because you believe in your own press, all right? You believe in your own press, 1 Timothy 3, verse 6 says, he must not be a recent convert. It's talking about someone who becomes an overseer in a church. He must not be a recent convert, convert. Why? Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. So the devil was conceited, right? Lucifer ended up doing what he did because of conceit. He regarded himself more highly than he ought. Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than you actually are? The reality is there's some people like that. They think they're very, very spiritual. Sometimes when I will counsel the person or interact with them, I can see that this person really needs to work on their emotional maturity. Oh, this person has actually got a deep flow in this area. Oh, there's a strong spirit of greed here, etc. But the person is completely unaware, completely oblivious of it. All right. Oh, this person needs to work on their patience. So sometimes we can see all the gaps, a lot of gaps, cracks and leakages in people. But the person believes that, no, I am super, super, super ritual. Look at the revelation I get from the Word of God, okay? And they and they sadly are self-deceived. So the Bible says, this person must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited. And what's the result of that? And fall under the same judgment as the devil. Fall under the same judgment as the devil. That's why I believe a powerful prayer to pray over your life is, Lord, reveal to me the wickedness of my own heart, right? That I'll truly repent Right? That I wouldn't be this person with all sorts of blind spots. You know what a negative blind spot is? It's what we typically call a blind spot, right? It's where you think you are really, really amazing, but the rest of the world is saying, girl, you ain't all that, right? Um, and then a positive blind spot is also dangerous. That's where you think you're average, but the rest of the world around you is thinking you're awesome, amazing. Okay, to use Pastor Stuart Bishop's word, right? They think you're awesome, amazing, but you think you're average. So you end up not stepping out and launching that new business, starting that new ministry, right? Because you think you're just average. So it's also dangerous, right? So we're not just talking about having a superiority complex. We're also talking about the dangers of an inferiority complex. And that's why I. Coupled this cognitive distortion with low self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is basically your belief about your ability to do something, okay? Your belief about your own abilities. There was a particular um, college soccer team in the United States, okay? Women's, Women's soccer. And they were doing really well. They were me, they were winning meet after meet after meet, game after, game after game after game. And people said, it's because of those two stars you've got. They're these two exceptionally good players. And they would deny it. They'll say, no, it's not because of these two stars. And in fact, the two stars ended up going somewhere to the Orient uh, for some competition there. And the team at home, without these two stars, ended up winning in that particular season. And so people realized it can't be because of these two stars, because they were absent towards the end, right? And then they were asked, why do you do so well? What's the secret to your greatness? And you know what they said? They basically said, it's self-discipline, it's self-belief and desire. Self-discipline, self-belief and desire. Desire sometimes known as competitive fight, okay? The desire to win. And this is so, so true. Sometimes talent is overrated, all right? Um, but self-belief is crucial. So self-belief is very similar to self-efficacy. So in the same way that we shouldn't overestimate our abilities, we also shouldn't underestimate our abilities. When we believe we can, it's amazing where it ends up taking us. And so often people have a distortion with regards to this With regards to their abilities Okay If you think you are better than you actually are Sometimes you don't then give other people an opportunity Sometimes you then don't ask for help Okay Very dangerous Right Let's look at some other scriptures In First Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 I'm talking about scriptures to do with conceit in particular It says So if you think you're standing firm Be careful that you don't fall right? The conceited person thinks, I've got this. It doesn't matter, right? They're there with their girlfriend. Oh, it doesn't matter. Me? Temptation? No, no, I'm fine. I can control myself. I'm not like those those people out there. I'm good, okay? Right? If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall, right? That's viewing yourself in a sober way, with sober judgment, right? Viewing yourself accurately. Right? So, don't overestimate your morality. That's the point here. Okay? In Proverbs 26, verse 12, it says, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for them. Are you wise in your own eyes? Do you think you're so, so wise? There's more hope for a fool than for you. That's what the Bible says. Okay? Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24. The Bible says, This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or the rich boast of their riches But let the one who boasts boast about this that they have the understanding to know me Isn't isn't that powerful? I remember there was a song about that I'll boast in knowing you Okay, that's my safe refuge, okay Um, That they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. So stop boasting about your wisdom. Stop boasting about your strength. Stop boasting about your riches. But boast in the fact that God knows you and you know Him. Isn't that powerful? And you can know Him even more. Okay? Self-efficacy is... According to Albert Bandura, he's the psychologist who actually popularized the notion, right, and uh, originally proposed it, right? It's a personal judgment of how well one can execute courses of action required to deal with prospective situations, okay? Um, So it's having the mindset that, you know what, I've got what it takes to do this. I can cope with this. And self-efficacy actually helps you when it comes to uh, things like depression, for example. When a person is depressed, they feel like, you know what, I can't cope anymore. And then they get into despair, right? I can't survive this situation. So I believe that God wants us to be in a place where we believe we can, but our competence is in Him, not in our own strength. Can you see the balance that I'm trying to communicate here? We must not be conceited. We must not overestimate our ability and our own strength. But at the same time, we must have a self-efficacy, right, that is based on um, our competence in Christ. And that's what's healthy. I think that's so important. Okay. Um, so it's where you've got a mindset that says, I've got this, I can do this, right? I can do all things to, through Christ who strengthens me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4 to 5, summarizes this really well. It says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Do you have a revelation of this competence that comes from God. He wants to take you to that place where you are rooted in Him and your confidence is in Him. I think that's so, so powerful. Do not overestimate your abilities, but at the same time, do not underestimate your abilities, okay? Your abilities are limitless when they're rooted in Christ. Isn't that powerful? Okay, the next, the next one I want to talk about uh, as we're focusing on cognitive distortions is stereotyping. Stereotyping. Now, I cover this in depth in my course. Um, You can find it on courses.paulnyamula.com where I talk about overcoming prejudice. Um, At the moment, it's a free course up until the end of uh, July, so I'd encourage you to please tap into that. Um, But I talk about overcoming prejudice and stereotypes. But stereotyping is a very common cognitive distortion, and it literally causes us to sin because we end up lying about people, right? And we hinder ourselves from progress. We literally uh, block out a lot of potential destiny helpers because of the stereotypes, especially negative stereotypes that we have concerning that particular So a stereotype occurs when we expect a member of a specific group to have certain characteristics without having established the facts. So we can have stereotypes with regards to groups. Now, it's up to us how we end up classifying those groups, okay? It could be a particular ethnic group that they are like this, right? But it's a form of mental laziness, isn't it? Okay, it could be a particular age group. Teenagers are like this. No, that doesn't have to be your portion, right? If you are parenting twins right now, if your kids are not yet in their teens, I want to encourage you, don't expect certain negative things when they become teenagers, okay? Uh, because the Bible doesn't actually talk about teens. It talks about a young man, all right? And in fact, if you look at the Hebrew culture, uh, they would take their kids through a bar mitzvah, and from that time on, that child is seen as a huos, hulos, right? And that speaks of a son, an heir, Uh, That speaks of someone who's a grown man now, and they're treated like that, and they're groomed into manhood that way, okay? But we've got this thing of like, oh, have you got a teen in your house? Oh, teens are like this, teens are like that. And we end up treating our teens like big babies, and um, literally they become that, because that's what our expectation of them is. But I know that with uh, my teenage son Samuel, for example, he, he wants to be treated like a grown-up. He likes the idea of being treated like a mature adult. And the more we treat him that way and relate to him that way, the more we draw out that maturity uh, from him. Okay? So that's very important. So you can stereotype an age group. You can say, oh, once you're in your 40s, this is what happens. Says who? Okay, Says who? Okay? You can stereotype people based on gender, and that's a big one. That's a big one that happens, okay? Uh, Let me tell you something. There are many different types of women, and there are many different types of men, all right? Um, And this business of saying, this is what a man is like. A man sounds like this, and speaks like this, and a man does this. Uh, be careful, all right? First look at the Word of God, what God says a true man is like, okay? Look at the Word of God concerning the true measure of a woman, all right? Um, And then apply that. And in a few weeks, I'm going to be talking about gender identity, okay? Which is so important uh, today to really talk about that, because there are a lot of women out there who might sort of uh, think like, oh, the way I'm acting or the way I look, it's quite masculine. Therefore, maybe let me change my identity to become a man because of, you know, this this thing, because I want to, I want to win. I don't want to fail in this whole gender thing. So I think I'm more like a man. Says who? Who's, who says that's what a man is like? Who says a woman can't be that muscular? Who says a woman can't have a voice that deep? Okay. So uh, these are things that we need to consider and we need to think about. And so uh, just look out for that message on gender identity because it's a contemporary issue that is affecting a lot of people um, today. So look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. It says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Isn't that wonderful, right? He looks at the heart. Yet we stereotype people based on what we see at face value, right? Um, You know that Samuel needed, the prophet Samuel needed divine assistance and revelation to see the true king, right? To select the true king, right? And that's why God had to challenge him and say, the Lord looks at the inward parts, not the outward. Okay, so even Samuel had to be challenged concerning his stereotypes. He thought like, the tall guy, yeah, I think that would be the king. Says who? Okay? Says who? There are a lot of good, short leaders, right? Um, so here are some common stereotypes you might have come across, right? And you sort of wonder, what's the, or, what's the origin of some of these stereotypes? French people are the best lovers, okay? So then you think, oh, let me choose that French guy because he's a, he's a good lover, right? Where is that coming from, right? You might be disappointed. Women can't drive. Factually, that's incorrect, In fact, on average, women tend to be safer drivers than men. That's why certain insurance companies have that strategy where it's like, you know, we insure women. Or when people are selling their vehicles, what do they end up saying? They say it's been driven by a woman. And then there's the perception that, oh, okay, so um, it was looked after better, right? Um, So why do we say that? Why do people say women can't drive, right? Or all Irish people eat potatoes, Okay, all Irish people eat potatoes. My wife has got some Irish in her. I haven't known her to be a massive potato lover. I mean, she can eat potatoes. I don't think she's a big potato eater. Okay, Um, but the point is we've got all these stereotypes that we like using. And even the positive ones are dangerous, the positive stereotypes, right? All Asian people are good at maths and science and are super smart. Okay, okay. Uh, Well, the thing is, many of them are, but not all of them, okay, Um, and in fact, a lot of them are actually hardworking, that's why they get a lot of results, right, sometimes they're very tough on themselves, like if you look at a lot of the Japanese and so on, right, Um, all women are nurturers, okay, not all women are classic nurturers, All right? sometimes some men are more nurturing than women, Right? So be careful of this, especially those of you who are teachers in schools and so on, because a lot of times uh, men end up feeling like, wait a minute, I feel like I'm being judged unfairly. You know? Sometimes we've got this thing of, uh, it's the men who will go after women and make all sorts of comments in terms of um, uh, gender-based violence with their mouths. Right. Uh, I've, I've heard the young people talking, the young people in our church just talking about how um, a lot of times it's the other way around. Some of the men are facing situations where it's ladies who start making comments, right? about them, when they're walking around, and they feel stripped, they feel like, are what are these women saying about me, okay? So, we need to be sensitive to these proclivities, we need to be sensitive to these dynamics that are taking place, and sometimes the danger is we end up using these stereotypes to our advantage. Let me give you an example, there's a stereotype that men are interested in politics and women are not, okay? So, someone can walk into a room, and if you are the only guy in the room, right, and the rest... female, what happens? They then ask you the politically related question. Now, here's the thing. Do you use that stereotype to your advantage, where you pretend you're clued up about what's happening politically, right, Um, and you play into that stereotype? Or do you say, you know what, I'm actually not clued up concerning current affairs, but Susie over here, um, maybe she's got an opinion about this, okay? So, it's important to challenge the stereotyping, Right, a lot of times women will use certain stereotypes to their advantage. There's a stereotype of you know the damsel in distress. Okay, I'm a woman, so I'm weak, and I need help from that guy. Right, and you're usually a strong woman, but because you now need help from that guy, what do you do? You put on your weak face, right? Uh, your weak demeanor. Oh, please help me! Can you help me, please? And you play into that stereotype to your advantage. And I sometimes see this happening. And I'm thinking, girl, why are you acting like, you know, why are you acting like you are weak? Like you're clueless when that guy is speaking, you know? Speak your mind into that situation because you've got an opinion about it. You see a lot of kids doing this, right? Child is now uh, 10 or 12, but when they're asking their mom for something, they act like a little baby. Mommy, please, I have to. Because in their mind, there's that stereotype of, well, mom is a nurturer all the time. And if I act like a baby, then I will get what I want. So let me act, in, let, let me act like the stereotypical baby to get what I want. Be careful of that. All right. So these are things we must look out for. Another thing to state is that sometimes there's an element of truth to a certain statement. So sometimes there's certain stereotypes that we have, and it's because on average, in that particular group, there's an element of truth with regards to this. But the thing is, you have generalizations, but then you have overgeneralizations, and we need to be careful about the overgeneralizations, okay? So as a generalization, yes, men tend to be stimulated by their eyes, by what they see, and uh, there's a greater number of men that are into porn than women, for example. But you know what? We will be foolish to just focus only on men when it comes to that because there's a growing number of women, right, and it's actually quite a high percentage, by the way, and I'm not going to go into that today, that are into pornography, right? And so we'll be foolish to just work on that stereotype where we only teach men about how to avoid porn, okay, because we also need to address it with women right? Um, It's interesting if you look at Titus chapter 1, verses 12 to 13, okay? Uh, We see here when Paul is writing, he actually quotes and he says, one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And he goes up to say, this saying is true. Now, Paul was not saying that Um, as a a blanket statement, okay, saying it's universally applicable to every Cretan, okay, everyone from Crete, okay, only that Titus needed to probably be aware of some of those evil proclivities in that community, and it's interesting that he wasn't quoting himself, he was quoting uh, one of the well-known poets who had said that years before, so he was basically reminding Titus, it seems, that Titus, you need to be aware of the culture that you are going into, all right? So, there's positive stereotyping and there's negative stereotyping, okay? And um, I just want you to remember that even when a stereotype is positive, it can sometimes be dangerous, okay? I've experienced it before, uh, like I'm sure many of you have, where a stereotype results in discrimination. And this is the thing, we need to manage our own rage, with regards to discrimination, when we are discriminated against. I still remember when I was um, just studying industrial psychology uh, in the 90s, uh, there was a particular magazine, I think it was called People Dynamics, and there was a statement made that for a lot of black people in South Africa at that time, the issue wasn't so much discrimination, the issue was managing your own rage, okay, in reaction to the discrimination that you were experiencing, right? Um, So when someone is stereotyping you or your group, how do you actually deal with it? One of the ways I like to deal with it is educating people, okay? That's my default. I just understand that a lot of people have not been exposed internationally, okay? They haven't seen the world and they've got a certain outlook. I remember going uh, to a particular insurance company and I arrived there and I was about to speak to the ex-co and you know senior leaders in the organization and i remember i arrived in my the vehicle i was driving at the time and um the security guard literally um assumed that i worked for the company okay associated with my vehicle they assumed that probably i was a driver from that organization and i had to re-educate that person that you know what Um, Are you not used to someone who looks like me, who's my age, driving a vehicle like this? Why can't someone who looks like me, who's my skin color, who's my age, uh, drive a vehicle like this? Okay? And then afterwards, I mean, he was very apologetic, and he gave me such great customer service excellence. Okay? So my response to discrimination is being able to educate people concerning certain things. I remember some time back, going and coaching someone at a particular bank, and the person was uh, quite senior, I arrive, and um, the receptionist says, oh, are you meeting so-and-so? Have you come for an interview? Again, stereotype, someone who looks like you, if they're interacting with a powerful person like that, uh, it must be for an interview, okay? That was her world, that was her world. Then I go upstairs, and I get out of the elevator, I'm introduced to one of the subordinates of that particular individual, and she says the same thing, okay? Okay? Oh, you're meeting so and so. Have you come for an interview? Okay. So, um, and then I ended up having to say, No, I've come to coach your boss. All right. But the point I'm making is how do you react to discrimination, especially discrimination that stems from stereotypes? One of the things I've learned is that whenever you meet people, just treat them like royalty. Literally, treat the person like royalty, right? Treat them as if they're the MD. it's much easier to then say, oh, oh, you, you're not the MD. Oh, you are um, the security guard, okay? It's much easier to go that way than the other way around, okay? A particular uh, person that I coach... She's an MD of a particular company and she tells a story. She's she's humble, she's not the kind of person who is into the whole status thing and she had that experience recently where someone was asking her about um, what she's doing during the lockdown, is she going to work or not, and this person was engaging with her and didn't know what her role is and her position is in her organisation, okay? Now this person is so-called coloured in South Africa, okay? Um, so uh, mixed background type of person, right? And there's a stereotype that if you're that, you must be in an admin position, okay? Some of you have seen my book, Breaking Out of the Pink Collar Ghetto, okay? What Successful Women Do Differently. Is that pink collar ghetto where people are like, okay, that's a job for females. They're there in that admin corner in an organization. So again, there was that stereotype she experienced that this person was asking questions. So even the admin staff, you have to go to work as admin, you know? And and it took a while for this individual to realize, oh, the person is making assumptions based on a stereotype. And much later on in the conversation, she then communicated and said, um, yeah, I'm, I'm the managing director, okay? And um, this person was so apologetic. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. She had to literally pacify this individual, okay? And just be like, you know, don't worry, you know? Mm-hmm. Like... Uh, Don't keep apologizing. So, some of you have experienced this in your life. How do you deal with these stereotypes? Do you react or do you just understand that, you know what, I need to help people, I need to educate them to broaden their education concerning certain things. Okay. The next one I want to look at um, is thought-action fusion. Thought-action fusion. All right. Uh, This is a common Uh, cognitive distortion that a lot of people aren't even aware of, okay? This is where there's a fusion between thought and action. So some research was carried out and was found that certain people who had OCD, right, obsessive-compulsive disorder, Um, and was first first encountered with regards to these individuals, where some of them would be terrified of going to bed at night because they would be having these intrusive thoughts that if I go to bed, when I go to bed, I'm going to die while I'm sleeping, okay? And it was actually found that that had a strong impact on them because they believed that those thoughts were actually going to happen. It's very subtle. Let me unpack it a little bit, okay? So when this work was done, Uh, they found that when people are experiencing these pure obsessions, okay, it actually increases their anxiety, it actually affects them, because they believe that the thought is the same as the action, okay, that's why it's called thought-action fusion, okay, so it refers to the belief that one's intrusive thoughts can directly influence the relevant external event. It's also the belief that the thought is the moral equivalent of carrying out the prohibited action, okay? So just because you think of doing something, it's not actually as bad as actually doing it. That's what I'm saying, right? Now, uh, when it comes to temptation, yes, it starts off as a thought. It starts off as a desire, and then when it's fully conceived, it becomes sin, all right? But don't live in a place of guilt because you had a thought, and you think that oh, but 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 even even though I didn't carry it out, it's just as bad. Okay, let me say something. There's level. There are levels of sin. Okay, not all sin is at the same level. Right. That's why, for example, when Jesus is speaking to Pilate, what does he say to Pilate? He basically says, "Listen here, um, uh, the ones who sent you to me, right? They have the greater sin." Right? um in the epistle one of the epistles of John he addresses that issue and he basically says um, there's a sin that leads to death I don't say you should pray concerning that okay but there's a sin that does not lead to death We see it in the Old Testament right where if someone stole something from someone else they were told hey you need to return it sevenfold okay but if someone committed adultery they were stoned. So you you can see God's mind concerning sin. There's certain things that are abomination to him, and there's certain things where he says, listen, you need to sort this out, okay? There's corrective action that takes place. So there are degrees of sin. The Bible, when it's speaking of sexual sin, says when you are sinning sexually, you're sinning against your own body. So the consequences are not the same uh, when it comes to sexual sin as certain other sins, okay? Just in terms of the impact it has on an individual. I'm trying to to you that not all sin is the same. Sin is the same in terms of salvation, okay? Whether someone uh, commits one lie or many lies, right? They're still a sinner and they need a savior, right? Um, So it's important to understand that. Now with the thought-act fusion, it can be so dangerous. So someone with OCD believed they would possibly die while sleeping because they had had intrusive thoughts, right? Uh, Around that and as a result, they were dreading going to bed. Okay, so sometimes one can have uh, Intrusive sexual thoughts for example and they end up being bound by shame and guilt as a result of this Now here's the thing the devil can plant certain thoughts into your mind Okay, and it's up to you to literally rebuke that particular thought Okay, so it's one thing to have a thought and then to rebuke it okay, and say, I'm not going to nurse this thought. It's another thing to have a thought and then to nurse it, right, and put salt and to put pepper, right, and to nurture it, and then it becomes sin. So, I want to encourage you, be able to distinguish between the thoughts that come from the enemy, right, where he sows a seed of temptation, and thoughts that you end up nurturing, because I'm telling you, those become sin at a certain point, okay. Okay. If you look at James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, it says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Right? And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, my question to you is, Where are you on this continuum? Okay? There's the temptation there's your desire, there is um, the sin, right? When you act on the desire, and then there is death. And are you experiencing small deaths in your life, in different areas of your life, because you've entertained sin, okay? So key questions, how are you being tempted with whatever sin struggle it is? For example, how how are you being tempted with power? Maybe there's a thought of Oh, you know what? I could have that role and I'll be so powerful. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? It's not the same as actually doing it, but the temptation is there, okay? It could be power. It could be control. It could be sex. It could be food. It could be comfort. It could be escape. It could be, oh, I wish I could tell them that because it's gossip, right? But are you acting it out or not? Okay, so chart your progression, your progression of desire okay uh, from a level of wanting something and then needing that particular thing and then demanding that particular thing okay where are you with a particular temptation remember what it was like for uh, samson how he just lustfully would say to his his mother get me a wife you know right he followed through with action that's not the same as having the thought of i would want a wife okay So be careful of the thought-action fusion, because I know that some of you have certain thoughts, some of them have been planted by the enemy, and you feel so guilty because of those particular thoughts, instead of actually uprooting them. That's why the Bible says we take every thought captive. That's what we're supposed to do with thoughts that are not exalting themselves above the knowledge of Christ, okay? That's so, so important. And, um, You know, Jesus basically says, um, uh, if you lust after a woman, all right, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And when he said that, I don't believe he was saying that when you've done that in your heart, it's just as bad as carrying it through, following through with the sin. But he was basically saying that it is sin, right? When you nurture that particular thought of lust, okay? Okay. It's one thing to have a lustful thought and uproot it. It's another thing to nurture it and, um, and obviously then follow through on it, okay? So how have you begun the gradual process of acting on your desires? Are you at the shallow end of sin or are you in the deep, deep end um, having worked yourself into patterns and habits, okay? Has it become a habit? Has it become a trend? Has it become a pattern? In your life uh, if so be very very careful because it starts off in your thought life I'm hoping that that has been communicated clearly uh, we need to uproot sin we need to uproot wrong thoughts um, but uh, it's not the same as following through on the particular action that's the thought action um, fusion okay the last one I want to look at is hindsight bias hindsight bias Um, You know, we tend to see more clearly in hindsight, don't we? If you look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 12 The Bible says now I want you to know brothers and sisters that what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel Okay in the NLT it says and I want you to know my dear brothers and sisters That everything that has happened to me here has helped to spread the good news now, remember Philippians is one of the prison epistles. It was written while he was in prison, while Paul was in prison. And I sort of wonder, did Paul have this outlook before the gospel had spread? Or did he have this outlook only afterwards in hindsight, when he realized, although I'm in prison, just look at how the Lord is ministering to people and touching the prison guard and all these people around us. Sometimes we view things more accurately when we see them uh, with that hindsight. You know, they say with hindsight, it's 20, 20, 20 vision, right? Um, but the unfortunate thing, is that very often we are hard on ourselves when we view things from hindsight, okay? So, for those of us who counsel lots of people, we need to be aware of this. For example, you have a situation where um, a woman is attacked by a man, maybe raped, for example, okay? Which is sad, it's happening in our society today a lot, okay? But you will see this lady still saying, I should have known, I should not have accepted a lift from him, I should have known. I should have just gone with someone else. It was safer. But that sometimes you have to say to the individual, but did you ever have in the past lifts from that individual? Yes. Did the person ever do anything to you or say anything to you that gave you a reason to not trust them? No, they never did. They would always give lifts to people. So I trusted them. So how could you have known on that particular day not to go with that individual? Okay. Okay, and and so often we say I should have known, I should have known. I've got uh, I've got a friend, for example, who was um, hijacked at gunpoint recently. Okay, he was at a particular uh, restaurant, and um, it was early hours hours of the evening. He uh, he was getting a takeaway. He was waiting for it. It was a restaurant he had been to many times. Okay, very close to his house, and um, the. The service was taking quite long, so he ended up going into his vehicle, waiting in his vehicle, and that's when he was hijacked at gunpoint, right? Um, He contacted me recently and said, I think I need assistance. I thought I was coping, but I'm not coping. This is what happened to me just a few days after my birthday. And of course, he ended up saying to himself, if only I had cooked for myself that evening, why did I go and get a takeout? But he was tired. He didn't feel like cooking for himself. Right? Um, and with hindsight, he was saying all these things. And I said to him, How could you have known? All the other times you went to that particular place, nothing happened. How could you have known? Could you have spent your whole day thinking to yourself, Don't go and get a takeout, you know, just after 7 p.m., because, you know, and, and it's not this guy, he's it's not, it's not like a, a weak guy, he's a strong gym guy, right? Um, So, be careful, because sometimes what happens is we are hard on ourselves. We become so hard on ourselves, I should have known, you know, I should have done forensic tests on my husband before I married him. I should have known that he had this deep psychological problem, you know. Had you seen those patterns, you know, maybe you didn't, right? And you probably didn't because people also change, okay? Maybe the person you got married to is not the same person today. So don't be hard on yourself. Here's an encouragement to you. Just remember that whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're facing in your life right now, right, is either sent by God or used by God. Either sent by God or used by God. There are a lot of situations and circumstances where God actually creates that circumstance, right? but there are a lot of negative situations and things that happen to us. Yes, bad things happen to good people, right? And God didn't create that situation, but you know what? He can actually use that situation, all right? And don't think to yourself, just because God used it and there was a good outcome afterwards, it was God who created it. No, he didn't necessarily create that negative situation, but he certainly can use it. And that's where we focus our strength. We focus our energy on that, okay? So, Often we have greater clarity of our life experiences after they've actually happened. And then, unfortunately, we beat ourselves up because we expect that we should have known all those things. So hindsight bias is the tendency to perceive that something was foreseeable when it was actually not foreseeable. Do not be hard on yourself. And there's an assumption that we make, and it's a misbelief, it's a guardian lie, and this is it it is possible to foresee all bad events, okay? Understanding right now the chain of events that led to the outcome means that the event was foreseeable at the time, okay? When you're looking back and you understand the chain of events, you think, oh, I should have been able to see it. But no, not always, okay? Um, So just remember everything in your life is either sent by God or used by God. Ask yourself the question, um, what happened to me? Or rather, ask what happened for me. You see, it's healthier to say, what happened for me? This negative situation. How did it actually happen for me? How can I use it to my advantage? Okay? And also be careful of becoming the retrospective prophet. You know, retrospective prophets, right? They only prophesy after the event. You know those people who say, I knew it, yes, no, I I could see it coming. No, 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 you would never have been that confident. You're now confident after the event because you can see the patterns because of hindsight bias. But prior to the event, you couldn't actually see the patterns. It could have gone either way. Okay, so let's be careful of that. I'm hoping that you've been encouraged as you've gone through these. I'd encourage you to download the notes and just pray through them, right? Uh, concerning all these uh, perceptual distortions, cognitive distortions that we've looked at because essentially they're really lies that we believe, okay? We will continue uh, in, a, in, in a couple of weeks talking about uh, this whole area of identity. I said to you, I wanna look at gender identity. I also wanna look at identity formation. We will be exploring how your identity is actually formed, okay, in a family situation, what's the role of parents. Uh, and what's your role as you look back on your life. We're also going to intersperse it with powerful messages uh, from our wife, great teacher, great prophet, and she's going to be talking about Ignited. It's a, it's a series that we're going to start doing called Ignited. Uh, uh, God is really using her to birth a prayer movement, and so everything you see that comes underneath that brand, Ignited okay? It's really to do with equipping the saints with regards to a biblical view of the world, right? And applying that biblical view to pray and equipping us when it comes to how to pray effectively. And I'm not going to go into some of the topics, but they're powerful contemporary topics that she's going to be looking at with regards to uh, things we need to actually be praying about as believers. So just look out for that and, uh, and enjoy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this revelation that you've been giving us concerning our identity. We thank you, Father, for how you want to empower us with a sound mind. We pray, Father, that where we have stinking thinking, may you uproot it from us, and may we fully embrace your will for our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. God bless you.